This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is brought to you by Fish Flight Entertainment. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart to the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I'm Sabrina Ronnie Firminger. Alfred Hitchcock. The name alone evokes a range of emotions, images, and memories in anyone who has seen even a sliver of his filmography. A man in a wheelchair with a camera, newly obsessed with his neighbors. A shower curtain, a piercing scream, and screeching, repeating strings. A man running for his life, an airplane in pursuit. A woman attacked by bloodthirsty, relentless birds. A creeping sense of dread with a hint of comedy. Rage, shadows, fear. From his earliest foray into the movie business during the silent era, Alfred Hitchcock changed the game. Heck, he even made his own game. One through which the goal was always to unsettle, to stir, to haunt, to move, and to horrify his audience, but while remaining wholly committed to pure cinema. But who was Alfred Hitchcock, really? What did he want from his art? What did the industry think of him? What did he think of his actors, many of whom described bullying and an almost contemptuous form of direction? And do the answers to any of these questions change how we experience his work today? I am Alfred Hitchcock seeks to answer these questions. The new documentary from Network Entertainment weaves together archival and new interviews with film stills and footage from some of Hitchcock's most famous films to paint a portrait of one of the most prolific, controversial, influential, and paradigm-shifting directors of all time. This new documentary is currently streaming on Crave in Canada, and it was directed by Vancouver filmmaker, teacher, event producer, and previous YVR Screen Scene podcast guest, can't forget that last one because that's like the most important, Joel Ashton McCarthy, who joins us today to speak about Alfred Hitchcock and the whys and hows and what the fucks of his work. Joel Ashton McCarthy, welcome back to the podcast. Good evening. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) Before we get into the the documentary uh, and some of your favorite moments, I want to ask you a kind of a simply worded question, but a big one. Okay. Why is Alfred Hitchcock important? That's a very interesting... I think that, like... I think he was, wow, it's a, it's a big question. I think yeah. the importance of Hitchcock is, is generally just being someone at the time that was willing to challenge what the film status quo was, mm-hmm. especially in Britain, which is very similar. Um, kind of reminds me a lot of the Vancouver scene in a way. Where, Interesting. Uh, where, you know, just... The idea of just being a shit disturber and sticking to your guns and uh, and that you can change cinema in that way. I think that, you know, Hitchcock is, 
I think there's a lot of problematic aspects that we can reflect on and learn from from Hitchcock. I don't think he's, you know, uh, necessarily a perfect figure by by any means. But I think overall, there's just been so much influence on filmmaking. And when you know someone makes uh, 53 films in their career over, you know, over six decades, yeah. uh, it's it's going to be you know, we've seen people in the the Spielberg generation and stuff like that, you know, have these these kick-ass runs and then really kind of fade and then it's like, oh, oh buddy, keep trying. It's still yeah. good. You're you're still there. But like he was pretty pretty consistent until the day he died and just I don't know, there's something there's something quite like those films still really stand up in a lot of ways from yeah. the very beginning to the end. And it's just that idea of experimentation. And like the thing that's so exciting is he was doing things before everyone else does. Like yeah. right now, it's really hard to like do something new in cinema because yeah. there's just been so much stuff that exists. But there, you know, there there was it was a time where people were writing the rules of cinema. Yeah. And uh, I, I just I, I I'm just so drawn to that, and I, I think that there is some importance in the work because uh, of how much like even just how much uh, Alfred Hitchcock changed censorship is a big thing, right? Uh, and pushed censorship and and started to to just move film along, right? And uh, I, I think, yeah, I think that that whatever the things that he did, whether it's subconscious or consciously, like there still is a reverberation happening today with films that come out. When you see like Parasite, uh, you're like, wow, there's a lot of like right Hitchcockian stuff, you know, that we're using you know getting these these the camera to tell the story and, and the dialogue is almost secondary and all that sort of stuff so yeah uh, it's there's a lot of importance it's hard to, it's hard to know where to start i know it's a big question and honestly also people can watch the documentary as well to get like a, yeah. a very full picture of that i find it interesting that you in particular when describing alfred hitchcock use the words shit disturber because if i remember correctly <laughs> when i introed you for your like origin story episode I described you as a shit disturber. A lot of people see you as a shit disturber. I think there might be part of you that sees yourself as a shit disturber in the industry. Was there? Did you have this sense of kinship, you know, uh, in your mind before you started learning more about Alfred Hitchcock for this documentary, or was this more something that revealed itself through the process? I think a little bit. I think it makes you kind of realize some of the darker sides in yourself, and like. Yeah. The way that I, I see films and, and think of the audience and all that sort of stuff, and um, you know, and, and not always see eye to eye with whatever you know larger status quo is happening. Um, yeah, I, I, I liked, you know, I like to think that I'm I'm different in a lot of ways, and I'm learning from the mistakes of Hitchcock, etc. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I think I was uh, what gravitated me to him was, uh, yeah, just this. A lot of the persona, which isn't really him, it's more of what he puts out there and yeah. like that idea of how he he brands and how he speaks about his films and, and film in general. And it's just so exciting. Like watching those intros to Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV show and stuff like that. I was just I was just I, I was just so charmed. And uh, I think that growing up, I would, I would always hear like, oh, Alfred Hitchcock, he's this horror director and stuff like that. He did like two horror films. Um, it wasn't really his thing, but um, he was just so good at being like at, at 
creating this vibe around his films, right? And, yeah. and, and uh, branding them in a certain way and, and branding himself. And uh, I don't know, I just, I, I just, uh, I've, I found him just such an interesting character and he's just so much funnier than, than I originally thought he was. You know, obviously, you know, I, I don't think I was, the, on paper, you know, if you think of the directors in this town or the directors that you know, you're like, who should make uh, you know, a documentary about Alfred Hitchcock. I probably wasn't at the top of that list, so it was it was kind of fun to do, you know, the Alfred Hitchcock doc that I wanted to watch and yeah. the things that I found interesting because realistically, you know, we could have made it's so we had so I had so much content I wanted to put into this, but you know, every little bit of archive costs so much money and all that sort of stuff. And so at the end of the day, it was like, well, what, what's the 90-minute story I want to tell yeah, here? The, the scope of it. I mean, and the fact that, like, I didn't actually realize until the documentary that he started with in the silent movie era. Mm-hmm. Went from silent movies, did all the talkies, you know, and then moved into television, you know, bringing the, you know, the film aesthetic and the film crew as well, um, you know, or... No, I'm getting it wrong. He brought the television crew to the film. But that almost didn't matter. It was bringing Hitchcock people to a Hitchcock project, right? You know, that he that you know he, he was cr- creating for a very long time. So, really, what was your starting point then? I so basically I had I've been with an agent for a while and haven't had this was my very first time actually getting a directing meeting. I've gotten re- meetings for writing and stuff like that. Um, and I've blown most of those. Um, no. <laughs> well, I just or, or just kind of realized, like, oh, I actually don't want to write for you guys. Never mind. Yeah. Bye. Uh, but, um, you know, because writing is, 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 you put a lot of your soul in it. It's and very like, intimate for sure. And if, if it's something that doesn't align with your values, it's tough. But um, so I got this. Uh, this call where it's like, hey, I want to put you up for the, are you interested in doing a Hitchcock documentary? Uh, they're looking for directors and what have you. And and I'm like, they'll take a meeting with me? Great. I'm <laughs> sure. Like, And so it was like, next week is your meeting. And so I obsessively like dropped everything in my like life to like, okay, what movies do I need to watch? What can I read? And I just like obsessively researched for like a half week, created this like full-on package that I brought to my like uh, my pitch and I was just like I went all in and I, I wasn't the world's biggest Hitchcock fan I'd always been really intrigued by him I'd seen some of the greatest hits yeah maybe in that meeting I embellished it a little bit but I was just like put it all on the table there and uh, and then eventually like two months go by and I'm like oh, I didn't get that and yeah. then I was driving up to Whistler for the film fest and I get the phone call and it's like Hey, we want you for this, and it was like, what? Oh, so driving to an actual film fest. I'm, gu- I'm guessing this was pre-COVID then. Yes, this was like the last. <laughs> Whistler was like the last film fest I went to before COVID. Yeah. Okay. So you started this then right before. Yeah. Oh, we we had we had the weirdest the, the like the timing of how this went down is just so crazy because what we wanted to do was completely different. You know, we had plans where I was going to go to like. LA and do a bunch of interviews, bunch of interviews in New York, some in the UK. Like it was a whole different production, and like we were gonna go into the Universal Archives and shoot some stuff there. Like oh, it was I'm what like, a shot list. <laughs> I'm, I'm like Joel's getting a kick at the can, and I am so ready for this. Yeah. So basically, it was like we're not gonna start until like 
mid-January, but you got the gig beginning of December. So I went into like film school hibernation where I took every biography I could find about Alfred Hitchcock, every single movie, every interview, anything I can get my hands on. And yeah. I just made it so everything that I was watching, consuming, podcasts, everything was Alfred Hitchcock. You listened to um, the Behind the Bastards episodes? Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I, I, yeah. It, it's... <laughs> That, those were very shocking episodes. They they are, but I it's it's so hard. like I will link to those in the footnotes. They're, they're by the great. Way. It's it's great. Actually, the best one the best one that I really loved, uh, and he's he's one of the main voices in this podcast is, uh, um, the what what is it? Adam Roche is his name, and um, it's like the untold Hollywood stories. He does these like really great. Uh, Amazing uh, audiobooks. Uh, oh. He just he re- just is releasing a Cary Grant one now, but uh, his Alfred Hitchcock one was so good. Cary like, Grant, famed LSD user. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> it, I I'm excited. I haven't listened to the whole Cary. Oh, Grant I can't one wait. Yet. Okay, well, I'll put a, I'll put that in the footnotes uh, as well for this uh, episode. But yeah, there's there's so much, and so yeah, it really came down to okay. Well, they're not giving me a ten part thing. I have to like, what is this ninety minutes? But eventually, we start get everything in motion we got our first few interviewees that we flew into vancouver to get like our foundation done like some historians and stuff like that yeah we shot one day the beginning of march Uh uh-huh and And then what happened (laughs) and then what happened and then it was like (laughs) that was the last time you were in here by the way because you came in here to record a a what covid might look like for film workers episode (laughs) and that was yeah, well, I it, yeah, so end. so we were like it was like all starting to ramp up, and it's like okay, end of April and May, we're gonna do the, all this like traveling stuff. You yeah. know, let's get the foundation built for this doc. So we go, and we do these first few interviews, which like were really the more in depth ones that we sprinkle throughout the whole film. Like, yeah. um, and then all of a sudden, it's like oh, Italy's going through some rough shit right now, oh, and then like. Oh. And and it, it was and it was just so interesting because I you could I I could very clearly see like this is this is going to be a this big thing coming. this is all yeah. shutting down this is going to be a big thing and then kind of working within our office there everyone's like no no it'll be two weeks so and then when things are like okay well this is going to be locked down it's like okay let's all just take like two weeks we'll come back everything will be gone bubba da boom bubba da bang and then it was just like. <laughs> cut to like a month of radio silence yeah. almost and I'm like oh my gosh is this and then you know hearing that like other documentaries they're working on they're kind of like pulling them and like no we're gonna not stop this etc so we were kind of like panicking it's like oh no this is like this is my chance this yeah. is my shot and it's like going down the tubes so started watching a lot of documentaries that were more audio based I saw like the searcher with Elvis press Elvis Presley one mm-hmm. uh, later on as we were coming back to it there was like a Jim Bel- or John Belushi one yeah that was coming out that was all phone call interviews and stuff like that and uh, we were like what if a lot of this money that we were going to spend on travel and this stuff and whatever, we license more archive yeah. and then we do audio interviews. So originally it was like, let's ship these microphones to these people that we're interviewing. And so it was just like terrible because we're like sending a microphone podcasty kit to like 
the former head of Universal and yeah. trying to be like, this is how you use Audacity and I need you to record and we're going to use Zoom at the same time. And that it was is just... my, after recording the podcast over <laughs> over Zoom and Skype, like that is my worst nightmare. Yeah. Oh. And so we did like two or three interviews that way, which was just <laughs> awful. And like one of them, like none of the audio worked and had to like pretty well redo it and like it was just like it was just devastating and then finally what we convinced and like this is at the height of covid where no one was allowing anyone in their room and, and yeah. stuff like that then finally um things got a little bit more normal but not really this is still pre-vaccine times yeah uh and we were able to get sound people to come in so they would set everything up uh wearing like full ppe get the person connected and then they'd sit in the other room mixing and so that was a lot easier because then it was just, you know, just having a Skype conversation with like some legends and stuff like okay, that. Okay, tell <laughs> me some of the names. Because, um, I mean, I, I ones that jumped out at me were, you know, Edgar Wright, yeah. Ben Mankiewicz, because I watched a lot of TCM, Eli Roth. Like, who, who were like some of the people that, one, you were so excited, you know, to talk to, you know, and also, and two, like, what, what were you hearing from them? Like, what kind of thread was running between all of these? conversations. Well, yeah, so basically I had to give them a list pretty early on. It's like who do you want to talk to? And my list is like big and didn't get all of them. I was like, yeah, I want to talk to Spielberg, Catherine Bigelow's a fan, this that and the other, yeah. right? But uh but some people that I like really have enjoyed um um you know, uh like uh Edgar Wright, I'm just a, I'm such a big fan of, and I yeah. know that he's I, I, he's talked so many times, on, tweeted about Hitchcock films and and certain scenes and stuff like that, and so I was like, oh my gosh, can I just like talk to Edgar Wright? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then that one was that one was ridiculous because he was finishing post on his new film, and so everything was really crazy for him. But he's like, no, I want to do this. I want to do this. And it just kept being like, oh, we got this ADR session. Oh, we got this. And like things just kept coming up. And then so finally I was like, I was like, anytime, don't think about time zones or anything because he's in the UK. Anytime, like we'll make it work. Yeah. And he's like, okay, uh, Saturday at 10 a.m., like perfect. And then I do the. Uh, Wait, 10 a.m. his time. Yeah, I do the So math. it's like 2 a.m. 3 a.m. Yeah. 3 a.m. Oh, man. <laughs> it was just like. I'm not a very late late night person, and I it happened to be also I had I had I was going to my sister's that weekend. I hadn't seen her in like a half a year, so it's like I'm staying at my sister's. I have to um, the only place the only room that I can get somewhat quiet is her downstairs bathroom, and and so I'm in the downstairs bathroom. Very trying glamorous. to like angle it in a way that doesn't look like a bathroom at like three to five a.m. having a chat with like one of my film heroes. <laughs> it's just like, yep, this is this is my life. That's I, showbiz. But uh, no, it was great. Um, uh, John Landis used to have uh, lunch with him every month uh, for you know a couple of years, so we got to talk with him and Hitchcock at Landis. Yeah, those must have been quite the lunches. Kind of at the at when. Um, uh, just when like Animal House had come out, so he was kind of being the the new kid at Universal, and and yeah. they bonded because Hitchcock was a bit of a dirty old man, and obviously 
uh, Animal House would have been something that I'm sure he would have enjoyed. Catnip uh, for him, probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that was interesting. Like, I, I knew that they had had lunch together all these times, and so I uh, was like, hey, it might be nice to talk to John Landis. And then <laughs> the response he did is like, uh, I don't know, just tell Joel to call me. So I had to like cold call him, and I'm like, oh gosh. Uh, here's his number. He's like, call anytime. And then he was like, he wanted to talk. Like, we talked for three hours and he would have gone for like two more. I think he was going crazy in, in COVID and he's like, yeah, you know, let me tell you some crazy stories. <laughs> and like, the f stories in that phone call, which I, I can't quite repeat, were told in confidence, were pretty, pretty outrageous. Um, you know, this person's been around Hollywood for a long time, but yeah, yeah Eli Roth, um, uh, Christina Lane, this amazing uh, biographer who did uh, uh, the uh, the Joan Harrison biography yes. recently, which we tried to get that all in. Yeah, Joan Harrison, for people who have not yet paused this podcast to go and watch the film, Joan Harrison was originally Alfred Hitchcock's assistant. Um, and then, you know, years later was also the showrunner uh, for Alfred Hitchcock Presents and was one of the... Um, the the few women in Alfred Hitchcock's life that he seemed to actually respect. Yeah, well, and she was also, <laughs> for like a decade, she was one of the very, very few female producers yeah. in Hollywood at all, right? She's just like, she paved the way for so much. And it's really tragic that like, when we look at like her death versus Alfred Hitchcock's, like, you know, when he was getting close to death, it's like, oh, let's give him every Lifetime Achievement Award. Let's make him a knight. Let's do this and that. And then, like, the thing that just made me real sad uh, looking at the comparisons is, like, for her, it was like one day her phone stopped ringing and it just never rang again. Mm. And it's just like, oh, this is someone who was a showrunner on so many shows, yeah. produced so many movies, basically was a pioneer of some of the biggest film noir films and like an icon in the film noir world and like history just kind of glossed over her hmm. and a lot of that was because when Hitchcock was getting all this attention later in his career he's like oh let me retell this story but centralize myself and make it so there's no one else did anything but me yeah. <laughs> okay so let's talk a little bit about that um because I mean as you as I've alluded a little bit too, and you've mentioned outright. I mean, there's he's considered to be problematic, controversial. If you listen to that behind the bastards episode, uh, talks yeah. a lot about goes really in depth into the more problematic aspects of his behavior. Um, in the film, we learn that Kim Novak, I believe it was, describes having to work to a metronome, like that the actual beats, the pacing was more important than like the inner life that the actors could bring to the characters. Um, his relationships for actresses were particularly fraught. Some of the interviews that you found where he's talking about, you know, the role of a woman and the place of a woman, like he saw them as set pieces and as possessions. Um, famously unleashed live birds on Tippi Hedren, um, who was attacked <laughs> and surprised by that and then attacked for days and days. Like, I guess my, my question for you is, one, I'm giving you lots of multi-part questions today. Okay. Answer whatever you want. One, does this disappoint you Was as you were learning these things? And two, should this bullying and, and misogyny change how we see his work today? 
which is something that, you know, is coming up, you know, from like, you know, the, the gl- glib conversations around, you know, cancel culture to real sitting there and, and thinking about like, I love this film. And it, and yet the person who created it d- had, had viewpoints that I consider destructive, might have hurt people, you know, like, and it's, it's, you know, so it's relevant in the larger context, but in, in the case specifically of of uh, Hitch, as yeah. people who know him called him, I guess you know him now too, Hitch, you know, like, where do you stand on this? I think that, like, um, yeah, I think that we, we have to deal with these facts that, that things were not perfect and how these films were made. Are, are, there's a lot of troubling things. I think that... Um, and it didn't get better right after Hitchcock died. Like the next generation was a bunch of boy filmmakers that were like trying to do the most dangerous things they physically could. And you look at things like what happened with John Landis in the helicopter incident and yeah. things like that, where it was just like, I think that it kind of became a bit of a, a toxic boys club filled with let's do what we want and let's everyone let's one up each other right and I think with the birds you know a lot of it was this ego of like I need to get this right and and these mechanical birds aren't working and this idea that Hitchcock plucked Tippi Hedren who was a girl in a basically what Slim Fast is like a diet drink commercial that he saw when he was watching you know the the uh, the news he was just like who is this girl I want her and the idea that Okay, well, now that I'm working with someone who's not a star, I can get them to do whatever I want. Yeah, and she I, won't run off to to marry a prince like Grace Kelly yeah, did. Yeah, because I, like, you know, if you look at you know stories of how he treated Grace Kelly or Ingrid Bergman stuff like that, he mm-hmm. was definitely in awe of them and and was much more respectful. But then yeah. when it was like, oh well, if I pluck someone and I literally sign them to a contract to me, I like basically own them. Yeah. And so, I think we need to like. Really, I you know we all have had so much, uh, so many moments where hopefully, if you've been existing in this world in the last you know five years or whatever, you've had numerous moments of reflection, whether it's how we treat others or things with uh, you know aspects of sexual harassment or um, bosses wanting way too much of their workers or mm. the countless race issues in this world, etc. Like. You should be reflecting on all these things and know that there there are aspects that are problematic. But, you know, a movie is made by a lot of people. Yeah. And, and as much as Hitchcock made it about him and made it very much the stamp, as this is a Hitchcock film, there was a lot of people involved. There was a lot of, as you see in the doc, he had a lot of female collaborators that mostly were forgotten in history. Yeah. But they were there, present in it and stuff like that. So... I just, I think, you know, unless we're lo- talking about uh, Bo Burnham's Inside special, there's really not many films that are made by one person. Yeah. Um, so I think that we, we just need, we need to contextualize these things and uh, some things are going to be more awkward to watch and you don't have to watch them. And you very much, if, if it, if you feel like conflicted by you know watching a film like I know a lot of people that it's very uncomfortable to watch a Woody Allen film now I will, yeah I will never as somebody who grew up in the 80s loved the Cosby show I will yeah. never watch another episode you know I never. think it's good it's good and it's healthy to sit in discomfort 
yeah. as well, you know? Like, there's no easy answer for a lot of this, right? Like, it's about making your own decisions almost on a case-by-case basis, right? Yeah, and, and you know, as much as I, I, the original cut of the documentary, I definitely pushed things a lot further and was maybe a little bit more harsh, but the estate has the final cut. <laughs> um, really? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I won't get into it too much because no, it I, also I gave us a lot of stuff. I respect the fact, though, that despite the fact that the estate has the final cut, they also didn't erase, you know, we still see the the reasons that he's problematic, right? Like, we still see, you know, we hear him saying stuff about women. You know, we, we hear about the whole uh, situation with the birds and Tippi Hedren in that famous scene. So I respect the fact that there, it's like a really good balance, I think. We, we still we still kept a fair bit in, but some bits uh, were were unfortunately sanitized, and it's tough. Like you know, I I'm so used to being uh, having no budget, no money, and no bosses. So it's mm. like, okay, no one wants to pay to make my film. I'm gonna make whatever the fuck I want. I'm gonna say what I want, all that sort of stuff. And this time. You know, I, I tried and I fought a lot of battles and I, I won most of them, uh, which I felt good about. But there's a few moments where I'm like, I feel like that was overly sanitized. And, and, I, and it's just something I have to live with. It's part of, unfortunately, being a director for hire. You're going you're gonna to fight as much as you, you can to make the film you wanted to. And I wanted to make, I wanted to make a film that, that really... I wanted people to leave the film ver- feeling very conflicted. I thought that that was like if if you look at the flow of the film, the first half is like getting us on board with this underdog who's always trying to get control and he has no control in this world and finally he gets control, he gets to make the movies he wants and gets to do whatever he wants and then just seeing how that kind of starts to poison someone in a mm. way. It's like this absolute power uh absolutely corrupts kind of stories is kind of how I, I saw his his story because you know up until Psycho you know it's all an uphill battle and he's like this is the next thing and, and with Psycho is the thing that's so interesting is he just come off North by Northwest it's the most glossy accessible Hitchcock film and he's like I want to do a this you know weird horror film and everyone is like no 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 don't do that and he's yeah. like fine I'll invest my own money We'll shoot it with a TV crew. We'll do it for under a million dollars. And we're just going to like, we're going to do it. Screw you guys. And uh, we're going to do it in black and white in a time where people were not releasing black and white movies. But, uh, you know, black and white television was a big thing. So I like the chutzpah there. And it's something really exciting. But then after that, you can see it, it it gets to almost everyone's head once they become so big that they, you know... It's it must and it must be hard hitting these high peaks. Like I still feel pressure that I always have to perform and outdo myself as I continue, and like I'm nothing on the grand scheme of things, right? Um, so I couldn't imagine what it's like when the whole world is waiting for your next film and how how uncomfortable it is for some of these people who become so infamous and how much better it is when you're not known, when you're keeping things small and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I, I I definitely am realizing that like I have way more fun the less amount of money involved in a film, the more fun I'm having. Mm. And the less amount of people I'm needing to please, the more fun I'm having. Whether yeah. it creates a better film or not is a different story, but 
yeah, I don't know. I'm I think when you're having a lot of fun, you create better films. At least, I, maybe, maybe there's you. There's an energy there. Yeah. It's an unspoken <laughs> energy. Like, I, I I'm thinking what. about. I'm thinking about your very, very, very first uh, uh, feature-length dr- dr- dramatic film. I, <laughs> I guess, which was. Uh, I mean, didn't you just do that in your own home? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We a couple thousand bucks or something. We had five thousand dollars, and we were like, "Let's shoot a feature film." And uh, yeah, and really did not care about like you know the amount of paperwork we had for that film is laughable. Uh, we just kind of did it, and I, I think that there's a magic to that, and that's always a magic that I'll, I'll gravitate towards. I, I'm always in awe when I see like young filmmakers that are like just going out and doing it and like I, there's a lot of gatekeeping that exists in film and like mm. I'm always drawn to the people that are like fuck it I'm gonna do it I I'm gonna just build my own thing yeah <laughs> I love it ah there's the shit disturber I know um, I just want to put a pin in that because I we were to I would yeah. like to kind of yeah. end by talking about the independent film scene and where how we're doing after COVID when everything feels kind of weird um, but before before we move on to that yeah I want to talk about like, but can you make some recommendations for people who they might have seen Psycho and and maybe Rear Window, you know, and but they don't know very much about you know the the fifty plus films that Alfred Hitchcock did. Can you make some recommendations, you know, about yeah. how they can really like what films they should watch to get a a more a, a fuller picture of of who this artist was? Well, I think the the one that that really was a surprise for me of how much I loved it and how much I thought about it after was Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow mm-hmm. of a Doubt was kind of like it's officially his second American film, but it's really his first like American film because yeah. he did Rebecca, which took place in you know in the UK and was very much. A, you know, British actors, all that sort of stuff. But yeah. Shadow of a Doubt is this like dark story in a small town, and it's about this uh, this girl Charlie who is, you know, like kind of like seventeen years old type thing, kind of coming of age, and her favorite uncle, who's also named Charlie, she was named after him, comes to town, and we start to realize that this Uncle Charlie guy is not a perfect person. He's actually like a messed up serial killer. And it's this super uncomfortable film of this idea that like you're living with this serial killer and it's all told so visually and so interesting. And there's such a weird, very uncomfortable sexual chemistry between them, which is like just a weird film. And so that one, because uh, like right now they're gonna do a screening at the Rio next week, probably after this podcast. It'll be after. It'll be after. Yeah, yeah. You missed you, it. You, you missed it. Yeah, I know. You all missed it. You should. You should have known. We should have known. Um, yeah, but so they're gonna be screening the your they're film. They're gonna do Rear Window. Yeah, they're after, gonna do but Rear they, Window. They asked yeah. me like, hey, we you know we want to do it as a double feature. What film would you like to be double featured with it? And I was like, Shadow of a Doubt. And they're like, which film that people will go to? Uh, <laughs> it was like. Oh. Uh, and so we're doing Rear Window, which Rear Window is like also one of my favorites. It's just Rear Window is the the ultimate Hitchcock cinematic film and yeah, what what sure. he believed cinema to be. You know, he was working on uh, he was working on uh, Dial M for Murder, the 3D film he made, uh, which he hated working on because 
uh, with working with like, this is when the 50s when 3D like first came out yeah because the 3D technicians had so much say so he's like oh I want to put the camera down here and get this weird angle it's like actually that's not going to work for 3D you got to shoot it more reserved and as someone who was always so particular about the camera it just mm. kind of rubbed him the wrong way so during that film he was just obsessing over rear window and he's talking about grace to grace kelly about it every day like this is this film i want to do i want to like write have the set built completely around the script it's going to be one location it's all going to be like someone looks they see something happen and like together as the audience and and this person build together they're going to think that the person across the street might have murdered someone and um there's something really amazing about that and then all of a sudden, Grace Kelly gets a call from Edith Head, the costume designer that Hitchcock works with. And she's like, okay, your fitting is on this day. And she's like, what? She's like, for Rear Window. Hitchcock had been talking to you about it for all this time. And like, she never agreed to it. There was never a conversation. He just, he was- Classic Hitch. He, was, he started working with her. He's like, oh, of course. Every film from now on will have Grace Kelly. And he did, when he started working with her, he did like three in a row. Yeah. And then she became a princess and he, it just, and he never forgave her. No, he, oh, it's just he, all he is is if you look at his career, he just keeps trying to find that muse to hold on to, and we'll do it for a few films, and then something will happen, and then he'll grab onto someone else. And I think that's why he gravitated eventually to someone like uh, Vera Miles and, and uh, Tippi Hedren because these people were not big movie stars, and that he felt like he could have some control, and it yeah. was, it's incredibly problematic. Um, but yeah, but yeah, there's, there's a lot. Um, I think other films, I mean, 39 steps is, is pretty great, but I think a lot of people might have troubles cause it is like from the thirties and mm. it is quite old man who knew too much is like very classic Hitchcock suspense. Uh, rope is just an incredible feat of like the idea of trying to make a film that seems like it's all one shot. If the films could actually, if the cameras could actually have done a full, uh, you know, uh, 90 minutes in the canister. Uh, he would have done it all as a one I'm sure, but he had to deal with, like, you know, you can only shoot, you know, 11 minutes at a time and having all these cut points in there. It's just just someone who's just always experimenting. But, uh, yeah, I would say Shadow of a Doubt is, is a, a gem that you might have not seen. Uh, Rope you've probably heard of, but if you haven't seen it, go see it. Love Rear Window, uh, and I think Psycho. You you have to put some love in, and there's something so charming about Psycho that like, except for the last ten minutes where there's like a guy explaining the whole film to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, like we just watched that. We just figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I do actually have one more question. Okay. How do you th how do you think that learning about Alfred Hitchcock will change you as a filmmaker moving forward? I think um, the thing that I appreciate most about Hitchcock is how much significance he can give to like a little prop, whether it's a key, a ring, or uh, you know, a stack of money or whatever. Just really good at building that suspense and building that inherent value of the things. I think like, the, do you know the term the MacGuffin? In a yes. script, it's like the thing that matters most, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, I just feel like in this day and age, the, Mag the MacGuffins in film are, are so lazy the way that they're done. And they're trying to like, you know, 
all of a sudden me, this USB key means everything. And we're just going to introduce this the midway through, but there was always an organic way that he worked through that. I just think having, having to spend, you know, like a good chunk of a year going back to like film school in a way and just studying the works of Alfred Hitchcock. Cause I never had the time or the reason to really dedicate myself to like learning that much about him. Yeah. And there's so much, but, um, I think that I'm just learning a lot about film history, why there are, are certain problems today and how they've kind of become, began to exist, etc. But I think like, like anything, you know, you, if you learn from history, you might not repeat it or you might be able to do one up from it. And, and, uh, yeah, I think that just like obsessing over Hitchcock for a year is, it's going to make me a better filmmaker. It definitely show like there's just so many interesting techniques as you're watching you're like oh that's smart oh that's interesting and it's hard to not recognize that as you go through these films there's you know there's obviously like the pacing is a little bit different than the films these days but there's always a few things that you can take away from when you're like damn that's impressive that's yeah. such a smart idea yeah yeah so about a year and a half ago we sat in this room there was no plexiglass on the table no. Uh, and we were pretty much like a day or two away from the industry just shutting, shutting down. down. Um, and that that episode, and I will pop it into the footnotes, you there can you find are. it there. But it was really about, you know, um, kind of like thinking about the ways that the, the pandemic would affect film workers and, and um, the films that are, are created. And I know that you right at the beginning uh, turned your attention to uh, a quarantine film festival. Uh, and that, was, that was when I thought the Hitchcock film was like dead in the water. I'm like, yeah. what a distraction <laughs> I now. need something else to do. <laughs> I always have to be doing something. Yeah. You know, and then in that time, you have also, you have, you have um, you know, with the pandemic still being there, you, you've had running gun. Did you have two running guns? No, we did two Vancouver quarantine performance projects, right. and then we just did the the back to brunch run and gun. Back to brunch, back at the Rio. Oh, magic! What what kind of what changes are you seeing in the in the indie film scene here in Vancouver as we all kind of rub our eyes like you know Munchkins and Munchkin Land, and we're waking up, you know? Because like before we started recording, we were talking about how just like. Being and sharing space with other people fear, feels weird. Yeah. You know, there's like a weirdness because the pandemic isn't over; it's still kind of there. But we've gone through this like 18 months or whatever it's been of trauma. Yeah. You know, so what what are you what are you seeing? Well, the cool thing about running film competitions throughout this is I kind of get a taste of what the overall psyche is because people mm. are just giving it to you. So at the beginning, it was like there was kind of this like hopefulness of like, yeah, you know, it's just going to be a few weeks, maybe a month, and then life will go on, and we just got to do this together. And then the second one we did was like when like the second wave was starting, and just everyone was gone crazy. Everyone was just like, it was madness, and every film was ending with people, you know, killing each other, <laughs> things like that. It was just like people were going mad. And now I think... You know, everyone's had, most people I know have had just like a rough roller coaster of, of a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Like, and through that, I think that a lot of people are finding what they value in life, what they value about themselves, putting things in perspective, you know, getting ready to tell their boss to fuck themselves or I want more money or 
uh, I want to be valued like this. Life is short, right? Yeah. We just saw, you know, an entire city in BC just burn to the ground in a blink of an eye and like and we've seen, you know, an entire world have, you know, so many people affected by COVID both, you know, physically and financially and all that sort of stuff. So I think through this, I think we've all just hit some dark depths and are starting to like reevaluate what we want in life. And what I'm seeing now is a lot of like bold filmmaking and people really wanting to just go out there and be their unapologetic selves. And I think I'm really inspired. Like we just did run and gun and we allowed 100 per teams to participate. So we had 1,300 participants wow. in one weekend, all making movies. Like, I don't think that there's been that many people participating in a Vancouver event uh, in my time uh, for, for film, right? I can't think of anything that comes close. And so, uh, and so it turned into a whole like week of film screenings and then the finals, which was just, it was just spectacular. But I just saw bolder films than I'd seen in the past. I think that a lot of people were just kind of like, you know, oh, I don't want to push anything. I want things to just be like this. And people were like, no, life's too short. This is what the film we're making is. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really inspired. I think that, um, and I'm so glad to be a part of giving people a permission to create because everyone was just so hungry then. And I, I know that like on the Monday, just every production in town had like, you know, at least like five people on set that had no sleep and were dead to the world <laughs> and just maybe not the best workers there. But um, it was, it's been so exciting. Your impact is felt all over. <laughs> yeah. And then like just having all these screenings, we did a screening at the Rio that was like live broadcast. We had two screenings at the Rio and then a, a bit of a, yeah, just, it just was, it's been so magical to start seeing people again, even if it is through masks, even though the Rio is only at like a smaller capacity. So it was just, uh, for like the finals, it was just like eight people per team there. And there was no no plus ones. It was all people that worked on these films. It was just such a creative, ruckus energy, and uh, I'm excited. I think that um, I think that there's a lot of just energy coming out there, and you know, although there's some devastating aspects about our industry, like we've lost Story Hive isn't doing narrative films anymore. We don't have Harold Greenberg Fund is is about to end. Um, there's what was. There's there's just several things that were there were helping people get off off the ground that have been just gutted and yeah. so I think that there's a, like a lot of people in the indie world that are like I'm just gonna create anyways and I, I'm excited to see that energy and uh, yeah I'm just I, I'm I'm very optimistic about the next generation it's always something that I really try to uh, foster and and to uh, give to. Um, because I, I don't feel like when I was starting that there was many avenues there that existed. Mm -hmm. And I felt like when I was doing features in my early 20s, uh, there wasn't really w welcoming arms or, or mentors that really wanted to, uh, to grab onto that. It was mainly like, listen, kid, if you want to make films, you have to deal with these unions, you have to do it with this, and you're at the kids' table. And yeah. 
know your place and do it this way. And I'm like, I just watched that thing you made. It was a pile of shit. I'm not going to listen to you. I don't care. And if I don't get to make films the way you want me to make films, like with that access, whatever, like I'm I'm still going to create like that's who I am. It's in my it's in my bones. Like I can't not do something creative. I go crazy. It's just not. I, I'm not mentally well if I don't have a project that I'm working on. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. I'm not like, there's, I, I think there's like, for me, like, there's no part of me that like, care, like, you know, I want to be financially secure, but I don't want to be like rich and famous. And I don't, I'm not, I just want to do like, I just, right now I'm just looking for that project that excites me. And in the meantime, what excites me is my garden my plants, my newly befriended pet crow, my um, <laughs> my son, you know. You have a, a, a crow friend? Uh, After watching the birds and also the fact that we are coming out of the crow diving season? Uh, well, you can befriend crows and they won't dive on you. They actually will tell their whole lineage that you're a good person. That's good. But um, yeah. So got, the peanuts that I leave out on the little table every day that the crows come and eat, that's a good thing? Yeah, I just picked up peanuts uh, on my way here. Cause, <laughs> uh, I, so Jeffrey's the main crow that I've been um, seeing for a while. Um, uh, Jeffrey visits me almost daily and will like peek through my window to see if I'm there and I'll feed, come out and feed him a nut or whatever. Uh, and then I think Jeffrey might actually be a mom and uh, has a smaller one that Jeffrey originally introduced me to, and then that one comes as well. Um, uh, Freddie Prince is, is the name for that one. And uh, yeah, I just, like, I'm just trying to like. I love this so much, <laughs> I love it. Like this is, this is, I mean, yes, you made a documentary during COVID, but you also are friends with crows now. And that's really rad. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't know. I'm just trying to. That's the COVID. That's, we're seeing the impact of COVID on you right now is. Yeah. Just, I don't know. Trying to just find the joy in those little moments and trying to slow down a bit. I think I just keep hurting myself, working myself too hard and uh, going crazy. And sometimes just like tending to your garden and checking in on your plants and crows is just kind of the grounding you need in this world. That is lovely. Before we go today, I would love to acknowledge the fact that over the course of the pandemic, we did lose, I mean, we, we did, we lost a lot of people. We lost a lot yeah. of people in Vancouver inside and outside of the industry. But we, the running gun community, the indie film community lost somebody very special. Yeah. We lost Bruce Blaine. I, I know that there is now an award that is given yeah. out at Run and Gun in honor of Bruce. You tell us a little bit um, about you know the impact that that I mean I'll never forget the films <laughs> that I judged that <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that Bruce um, that Bruce worked on um, that his performances his held nothing back performances and the work he put out there. But you know tell me about um, you know uh, the impact that Bruce had on you and on this community. Yeah, well, so I met Bruce uh, a few years ago in Run and Gun. He he was in a film and he was playing like a kind of an awful agent type manager type and just, you know, kind of big bully character and and I'd not seen him in anything before and he was just giving it his all and uh, he was just, you know, I was like, oh, this guy's very, really interesting. And then I met him at Run and Gun. He was just in love. He's a guy who, like, you know, he does not care much for social graces and 
always speaks his mind and sticks by his guns and all that sort of stuff. And he was just like so stoked to see an event that like delinquents were running that was just like, <laughs> you know, a beautiful kind of chaos and all that sort of stuff. And he, he said to me, next year I'm coming back. I'm doing a run and gun. I'm doing a film for either run and gun or blood and guts and I'm going to win. And it was, he had never directed anything before, but he just decided that he was going to jump into the world of directing. And not only that, but like on like the, the Facebook groups and stuff, he was like shit talking everyone and like, nice. Oh yeah, we're going to destroy. <laughs> and like, it's so funny. Cause like, I think a lot of our community is just so like polite and overly Canadian. Like, well, you know, as long as we're all having fun, he's like, fuck that. No, no, I'm going to win. And so <laughs> he did a, a film called bad Santa. Yes, and, he did. And like when he came into the, uh, to like the final screening, he like had, his whole team in Santa hats and it was like, you got a campaign to everyone to vote for us in audience choice. And he just like, he came in so hard and I just like, I loved that energy that he brought to it. And like, he just cared so much about it. And you know, uh, you know, I have so many like questions and emails and he was also giving like Gearbase a hard time about certain things. And it was just like, it was just, he came in so intense and, uh, and uh, from then on, he was just such a part of the community, and he yeah. was taking a stand when stands needed to be made. Yeah, one of and my f my uh, most powerful images of Bruce is standing at a uh, the press conference that Michael Colvin gave, and um, uh, I was there as a reporter. And you know, uh, people people who are survivors or um, supporters of survivors are holding up holding up signs that says, you know, believe women. And, you know, Bruce was, I mean, he towered over everybody too, right? Yeah. So he was there, just standing there, one of the few uh, male allies who were there, you know, with a sign, you know, which was, um, it, it was very powerful to yeah. to see that, that act of, of allyship. Yeah, and then in the last, like, year and a bit, he just, or two years, I guess, he started his own acting school. Yeah had all these students that just loved him dearly and uh, he was starting this demo reel business where you know it's so hard to get that first bit of quality footage so he's like shooting you know full-on scenes uh, with you know cinematographers this that and the other and like I, I just was so inspired that like there here's a guy middle-aged that like decides that he's going to change everything in his life like he didn't become an actor until later in his his life uh, didn't start directing and start this business until later and like yeah. there was just so many things that were just starting and he was just really emerging into this this butterfly so to speak and it was I you know when you find out the the news that someone especially like I, I was on the phone with him a week before and mm -hmm. like it's just it was just so tragic to like all of a sudden know he's he's gone and we we want to honor him at the film festival and and honor him in the community and like there's and you know he's he's just one of the many people we've lost and he's very part a big part of run and gun but uh this year in general um you know especially for the all the a lot of the younger people we lost what weren't necessarily because of covid a lot of it was um the isolation that was getting yeah. to people uh the fact that the you know the safer drug supplies from the states were all 
uh, blocked, and so people were improvising with how they were packaging and selling drugs here. Yeah. And we wasn't until literally like last week that uh, our government decided that oh maybe we should try to get safe drugs out there when we have record numbers of overdoses <sighs> and uh, it's been it's been a uh, it's been a it's been an, a real tough year and I think that. I hope what I hope that we learn from this is that, you know, we got to be there for each other. We got to come back swinging to a certain degree, you know, within, within safety things and that life is short and precious and uh, it's not worth living in a, in a world that doesn't serve you and and, you know, stand up for what you believe. And I'm just so gracious for like the people around me that are like going out to Fairy Creek and being like. Mm. Fuck the police. Let's get in this blockade and let's do this. And like, I just, I, I really, I'm just gravitated towards people that like are trying to make a difference here. Cause like what I've unfortunately learned, someone who's cared so much about voting and politics is like our democracy fucking sucks here. Yeah. It's awful. And you, people will say whatever they want to get elected and, and, and have no, no reason to, to do those things. So this idea that like, you know, well, you just vote for someone else. We live in a democracy is bullshit. Yeah. You have to you have to you have to make the difference and and your people have to make the difference because it's not going to, you know, whether you vote for the blue guy or the red guy, they're all fucking flawed. And sorry. Or the orange guy. Or the orange guy. <laughs> but you know. But not the orange guy. But at least at least what Trump did <laughs> is allowed the media to actually poke holes at what the government was doing, right? Like the cages that the kids were in were built in the Obama era. Mm. But, you know, th th that's a whole bigger issue and stuff yeah. like that. But this world is really messed up and we got to come together to make it better and not expect our government or our institutions or, you know, whoever's running this to empathize because generally when you are no longer that little guy, you don't care about the little guy. So it seems to be that way. I don't think that people... Uh, at least what what I've seen looking just even at film when I was kind of getting into the industry I didn't see the people with a lot of power looking at like how do we pull the next generation up yeah. and for me that's that's something as a teacher and and as someone who runs film competitions and stuff like that that's really all that matters is that we're pulling each other up like we're in Vancouver and in BC and Canada you know, we're up against so many giants in film and we have this huge industry that uh, utilizes our talent, but we don't see enough of, you know, things written by Vancouverites here. Um, Vancouverites in meaty roles at the number one and two mark, et cetera. And uh, I hope that this time has, has, has got several people ready to make a stand and to just not always accept what what the status quo is is throwing at us. I hope the exact same thing. Joel Ashton McCarthy, you shit disturber, you. Oh, You're a fucking delight. <laughs> Where can our listeners find you, follow you, celebrate you on all the social meds? Uh, I I'm uh, on uh, uh, Instagram at Joel McCarthy. Uh, Are there crow photos? Pardon? Crow, Jeffrey. Can we uh, see yeah, Jeffrey? Mo most of my stories <laughs> these days are about Jeffrey and okay. my garden. My, my, my close friends get to see the, my extra exciting garden. <laughs> um, 
that is that is legal <laughs> and so much fun to grow. Oh, uh, okay. I think, oh God, I'm never buying government weed ever again. Uh, never, ever, ever. Not not trusting, not buying. <laughs> Everyone grow your own food, grow your own drugs. Yeah. That way it's you want to make sure it's safe, it's organic. (laughs) Like there you go. It's the only way to do it. But yeah, uh, yeah, lots of crow content on there and my son and stuff like that. And then uh, yeah, I have a YouTube uh, This is a Spoon Studios has a whole bunch of fun stuff and yeah, we'll just keep creating. Good. And you're gonna keep coming back, right? Sure, if you okay. still have me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't wait a whole other pandemic to come yeah. back, okay? See you the next one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, and I would also like to add that if you live in Canada and you want to watch I Am Alfred Hitchcock, you can watch it on Crave. Yeah. And if people are America or internationally, where can they watch it? So I don't know. So it's like everywhere has like a different thing. So in the in the uh, UK, it's like Sky TV. There's something in in uh, Spain that you can watch. It's just look around, it's playing in Israel, and I know that they're planning the American release. I kind of hear about these things almost after the fact as a director for hire, but it's gonna be released in America (laughs) soon. Um, And it's, yeah, it's exciting that it's just out in the world, but it also is kind of sad to not like have all the the exciting premieres and stuff like that is like, we need content out. Let's just start selling this film everywhere. So it's out. Go it's see out. it. It's out. Um, and I was going to plug the Rio event, but that's in the past already. Yeah. It was fun, right? It was so much fun. You missed out. You missed out. Big <laughs> Y'all time. missed out. Why weren't you there? All right. All right. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Thanks listeners. Please like, subscribe, leave us a review if you're so inclined. They help us keep going. And I need anything to hold on to these days, okay? You can find us at www.yvrscreenscene.com. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at YVR Screen Scene. The YVR Screen Scene podcast is hosted and executive produced by me. And I am, I am Sabrina Ronnie Furminger. And it's edited by Simon Furminger. Special thanks to Mariana Furminger for recording our Patreon ad, to Paul Furminger for technical support, and to Dane Not Furminger Devlet, oh, poor Not Furminger Dane, for the original music. Why We Are Screen Scene is a division of Fish Flight Entertainment. Join us next time for another deep dive into Vancouver's dynamic film and television scene. And cut! This ad begins with a story about an important but largely forgotten piece of Hollywood North history, the fish flight. In the 1980s, the fish flight was an early morning flight from Vancouver that delivered fresh fish to Los Angeles before the start of the business day. These were the early days of Hollywood North before digital deliveries and fast transfer speeds, and the pioneers of the Vancouver film industry began loading up the fish flight with film reels so Hollywood execs could review the footage shot on the previous day. The fish flight was also one of the building blocks of the visual effects and animation mecca that is present-day Vancouver. And Fish Flight Entertainment builds on this legacy. Fish Flight Entertainment serves the games, film, and television industries. We remember the days of the fish flight and attack our projects with the same passion as those pioneering days of yore. We believe in jumping off the cliff and building our wings on the way down. And who knows? That old fish with improvised wings may even fly. Learn more about Fish Flight Entertainment at fishflightentertainment.com. That's fishflightentertainment.com.